Well, once again, good morning. <clears throat> wow, am I awake yet? We'll see. Uh, we're gonna. <clears throat> I'm gonna talk to you in just a minute. Promise. Uh, we're continuing a series of sermons on a newly proposed mission statement. This is what it is: to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, to grow in love for one another, and to go in love to our neighbors near and far. Now, if you missed last week's message on this, uh, there's just too much to recap. I'm sorry, but to try to hit the high points, uh, this is a newly proposed mission statement that we'll vote on in December if you're a member. Hey, that rhymed. Who knew? Um, We're proposing this particular statement because we think it underscores the centrality of God's love displayed for us in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, and how that love melts us and moves us to go outward in love, first for one another as a church family, uh, in authentic community, and then also farther to our neighbors, both near to us here in the Wake Forest area and much farther away to the ends of the earth as we just prayed uh, for Hannah in bold witness. So there's three loves represented in this statement, and the first of those three we're going to talk about today is our love for God. So the first line of the statement, to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, Uh, That first line kind of cuts two ways for us. I'm trying to get a two-for-one out of that first line of the statement. Knowing God's love means first receiving His love and then returning love back to Him. First giving, or first receiving, and then also giving love. Our love for God is not something we have to conjure up. Our love for God is not something that we try to do to get Him to like us more or to get Him on our side. Our love for God is a response to, it is evoked by, it is drawn out by His great love for us. The Apostle John said it much shorter than that, we love because He first loved us. So my favorite scene in Les Miserables, whether it's the book or the play or the movie or whatever, any version, is where Jean Valjean... Uh, the main character who begins the story, you know, is this hardened criminal. He comes to take shelter in the home of a priest while he's on the run from the law. And although the priest welcomes him, uh, gives him a bed to sleep in, feeds him dinner, uh, welcomes him as as a guest, Jean Valjean decides still to get up in the middle of the night and to steal the priest's uh, belongings, to steal some of his silver. And even as the priest hears him and confronts him during the night, uh, Jean Valjean knocks him out cold and escapes into the night. But he doesn't get very far before he's caught by the town guards and he's dragged back before the priest. uh, And they tell him, we caught the vermin, you know, that took your silver and he'll be back in his labor camp uh, by tomorrow. And the priest, when he looks at Jean Valjean dragged before him, knowing he's about to go back to this labor yard, he looks at him and he says, oh yes, my friend, thank you for bringing him back here. You forgot the best part of the silver we gave you. The candlesticks, you can't leave without those. Please, please, release my friend. So puzzled, the guards released uh, Jean Valjean, and the priest brings out these most valuable possessions, his silver candlesticks, and he gives them to Jean Valjean, who betrayed him. And he says, with this silver, I have bought your soul for God. You are free. And I really like how in the most recent version of the, of the the movie musical, Hugh Jackman, you know, plays Jean Valjean. And he just, he emotionally portrays so well what is going through Jean Valjean's mind and and heart after being forgiven like that, after being loved like that. It 
It just kind of breaks the guy. And so he sings, you know, totally in play, dramatic fashion. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? So why do we love God? Well, one word from him and we would be condemned forever. Instead, he offers us our freedom. He's ransomed us, not with, like 1 Peter says, perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Father gave his only Son. What kind of love is that? What spirit comes to move my life? You see, when you embrace the love of, Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God does come to move your life in such a way now that you really do love the Lord, which is what I want to talk about today. So let's pray. So Lord, as we look at your word together, um, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would open our eyes to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that in doing so, we would want to love you back. So meet us today, we pray, through Christ. Amen. So let's begin by reading what Jesus called the great commandment. And when we get to the, I think, uh, to that part, to the part in quotes, in the bolded part, let's read it out loud together. I'll tell you when. So, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, let's read this together, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So it sounds like to me, this is fairly important. It's like the main thing we are to do with our lives, Jesus says. It's great. It is first, it's priority, put a star by it, scoot it up a little higher on your agenda to the top. Now you may know this is essentially a restatement of what Moses gave ancient Israel in Deuteronomy chapter six. So while I'm making you speak out loud, let's do an easy one and read this out loud together. Deuteronomy six, verse four, read it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Two things to know about this ancient commandment. Let me trace this through the Bible with you for just a few minutes. But the first thing you need to know is that God wants our love. His great and first commandment is that you would love him. In other words, God is not and has never been interested in some empty system of religious observance. The first thing he's after is your love, your whole self, not just religious ceremony. That's what he wants. But the second thing you need to know about this commandment is that Israel could never seem to keep it. This is the big problem in the storyline of the Old Testament. The people were called to love God 
with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they, they just didn't. And so the prophets, they would belabor this point graphically over and over in places like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. So I won't make you read this one out loud, but I'll read it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. Jeremiah says, let us lie down in our shame. Let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. They do not keep this great and first commandment. And this is the story of the Bible. You were made for God's love. You are called to give him love. But you do not. Like we cannot. We're so spiritually sick that we need a heart transplant, a whole new heart. So even as the prophets in the Bible would lament the unfaithfulness of Israel, they would also look for and long for a day when God would, would renew his people somehow, where he would intervene. Ezekiel chapter 36, this is the great hope of the prophets, where they look for it and say, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was the great hope of the Old Testament that at some point, God would intervene in the world in such a way that he would dwell in the very hearts of his people so that they could actually love God from the heart. And the New Testament picks up on this. It says, this is what Jesus came to do. Uh, there's a lot of places I could go, but for sake of time, I'll just go here, Galatians 3. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's saying Christ took the curse of our sin so that we could be considered righteous, the blessing of Abraham, and even have God dwell in us, with us, personally, internally, mysteriously by his Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian, the third person of the Trinity. Perhaps most importantly, the Holy Spirit, and we talked about this last week, he opens our eyes to the loveliness and glory of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he moves us to actually love and delight in God. Professor Michael Reeves helps sum this up for me. He says, my new life began when the Spirit first opened my eyes and won my heart to Christ. Then, for the first time, I began to enjoy and love Christ as the Father has always done. And through Christ, for the first time, I began to enjoy and love the Father as the Son has always done. 
That was how it started, and that is how the new life goes on, by revealing the beauty, love, glory, and kindness of Christ to me. The Spirit kindles in me an ever deeper and more sincere love for God. And he stirs me to think ever more on Christ. He makes me more and more God-like, less self-obsessed, and more Christ-obsessed. So here's what's awesome. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the very Spirit of God working in you, making it so you really can love God. Not perfectly, not yet, but genuinely. So be encouraged. Loving God, delighting in God, liking God, enjoying God is not impossible for you. It's not. But on the flip side, you know, if you've been involved in church and Christian things for so long, and yet you don't think you would be able to say that you have any love for God, like you just, you don't have any delight in him, you don't really like him, there's never been any real interest in him, you know, it's worth considering if you've had a real encounter with the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because if you do, it transforms you to actually delighting in God. It's worth pondering. So there we have. What I've tried to do is give you a quick crash course in the biblical theology of love for God. We're made to love him, but we've not done it. We can't do it. But through Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, now we really can begin to love God. Again, not yet perfectly. You might say, We've been given hearts of flesh, but not hearts of gold, not just yet. But a Christian no longer has a heart of stone, is the important thing. They have tender hearts that now beat with genuine love and affection for God. Okay, so what? Cool story, bro. What does all this have to do with the vision and values of our church? Well, let me read a bit from... um, from a draft of our vision and values document, which we'll send out to you in the next couple of weeks so that you can read it, consider it, think about it, offer feedback if you like. Uh, And this begins with, after talking about God's love for us, we now talk about love for God, authentic worship. Let me just read from that document. It says, loving God in response to his great love for us is the great privilege and calling of every Christian. It is what Jesus called the greatest commandment. So we want to see every follower of Christ established in a growing relationship with God that's marked by a wholehearted pursuit of God, the development of Christ-like character, and a life of worship. So that's like a summary statement of everything I just said. But then we go on in the document to explain how our love for God is specifically expressed here at North Wake through four key values. There will be other values that we talk about, nestled under other loves, love for one another and love for neighbor. But here, this is our start in terms of loving God. So let me work through these four with you. What I wanna do is read each value and then give some examples or ways that each of these plays out in the life of our church, both in like a formal corporate kind of way, but then also in more informal, personal, or you might say organic kinds of ways. So first, Because we love God, we exalt Jesus. Because we love God, we exalt Jesus. 
Above all else, we are followers of Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. In light of that, we want both our lives together and individually to be centered around the crucified, risen, and reigning King Jesus. So that's our first value. Because we love God, we exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. Uh, it won't be on the screen, but just listen to one of the scriptures listed there, Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So all things made through him, for him. He's the head, the beginning, he's preeminent. So for example, when we gather together, we gather to sing the praises of Jesus. So like the music at North Wake, it's not here just to entertain you or to serve as like buffer time before the sermon or as a warm up or to stir up your emotions. It's meant as an act of bringing our whole selves, our mind, our heart, our vocal cords, our hands, our sins, our sorrows, our joys, our burdens, our plans, and our thoughts. We bring them all before the King of Kings together. And also, you know, together, when we're together, we, when we open the Bible, we're proclaiming Christ. We're not just trying to explain Bible passages, but we're showing how each part of the Bible fits into the storyline of redemption that leads us over and over again to the person of Jesus. So one of the things that I pray every time I get up to speak is that the person and work of Christ would be lifted up so that men and women and boys and girls might be drawn to the Father through him. So that's just a couple of formal expressions of exalting Jesus because we love God. And then at a personal or informal level, how do we exalt Christ as a church? I suppose the ways are endless. I'll give you a couple of ideas. You can sing to him also. Did you know that? You can sing, not just at church. Um, personally, I have a Spotify playlist of about 150 songs called Songs That I Need to Listen To. Because these are songs that remind me to worship Jesus when I forget about him. So I play it pretty often, actually. Um, you can sing to him on your own. You can exalt Jesus by daily giving him thanks for all things. All things were created through him. So you can exalt him by enjoying your food and the wonderful world that he's made. I spent um, Thursday night, all of Friday, and most of yesterday out in nature, in the woods. And I now know why the unknown hymn writer penned these words. Maybe it'd just be better if I sing it. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer 
Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. And I was outside in the fall, which is even better than the spring, if you ask me. Why don't you sing it with me, if you know it? Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels here can boast. You can sing that stuff when you're on your own. You might have to look up the lyrics like me. But you can sing to him. You can thank him for the beauty of the world. Blooming flowers, falling leaves, shimmering stars. I think you can still see some stars in Wake Forest, right? Almost anything can be a prompt for worship of Christ. You know, we also exalt him when the rubber meets the road of life, when we say no to temptation, when we confess our failures, run to him for mercy, when we bring him our work, the fun parts, the boring parts, the stressful parts, when we trust him in financial hardship or unyielding health troubles, when we stop to notice the outcast and the needy, when we daily dethrone ourselves as king of our lives and instead take up our cross and follow him. So personally and together, we exalt Christ, the one whom scripture says the Father has exalted and glorified. All right, I could go on about Jesus, but we need, we need to not go further from Jesus, but we need to go to the next point. Second, because we love God, we pray. Second value, because we love God, we pray. So it's our great privilege and joy as Christians to delight in the company of God. All good things that will come from our church will flow from this vital union with him, nurtured by prayer. To truly trust and honor and know and enjoy God means that we must be a people who, led by the Holy Spirit, pray without ceasing. We carve out intentional spaces in our lives to be still and know our God. Okay, North Wake, if you've been here very long at all, if there's anything that Larry has tried to underscore for us through the years, it's that we were redeemed that we might enjoy the company of God. Prayer is not just something we do, it is someone we meet. I'll start with the informal or the personal here. So personally, individually, we learn to live with God in prayer each day. We talk about learning ceaseless prayer practices, simply learning to say under our breath things like, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, or God, I love you, help me to love you more, or God, I need you. Having those prayers at the ready to pray under our breath each day. We learn sustaining practices where we set aside a few moments of each day, perhaps morning and evening, or maybe tied to certain practices like brushing your teeth or getting dressed or washing your hands that remind us of our need for Christ. Ceaseless, sustaining, and then we learn deepening practice that, practices that help us actually take a whole half of a day 
or an entire day or a whole weekend (gasps) to be with Jesus in prayer. And if you want some training or equipping in any of that, and if you missed the Delighting in the Company of God course that just finished, I think those talks are recorded. Even if they're not, you could probably bundle and save and get the teacher's notes from the class if you were to take Larry Trotter to coffee, our dear pastor of spiritual formation and shepherding. That's like his, his, his deal, is to help you in this. So those are some things personally. But then corporately and together, we want to be a church that prays. This is why we gather once a month on Sunday evenings to pray. This is why we stop and we pray in our services here when we gather. Other prayer groups, prayer nights regularly use this campus to pray. And you should know that our leaders meetings, our staff meetings, and our elder meetings are saturated with prayer. When I first joined our staff team and started going to staff meetings, I'm like, holy cow, we pray a lot. We got to get some stuff done, y'all. We got an agenda here, you know, to get through. But, um, you know, that's probably most of our responses to life. We got to get stuff done. But the truth is, we got to pray. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, nada. All good things that come to our church will flow from our vital union with God in prayer. A day without prayer is a boast against God because we say, I got this. We got this. (laughs) Um, The late pastor, Tim Keller, just after the events of 9-11, he tells of how he and his wife, Kathy, finally recognized how much they needed to pray. He said, I had always struggled to pray regularly, even as a pastor, until their city was shaken by terrorist attacks. Tim was diagnosed with cancer for the first time, and Kathy Kathy was suffering from Crohn's disease. So at some point, in the midst of all that stress, Kathy told Tim, imagine that you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before you go to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss this medicine or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? (laughs) No, it would be so crucial that you would not forget. You would never miss. She said in that season of their life, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we are facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds. We pray because we just won't make it as a church without it. So we value prayer, formally and informally. And then third value, because we love God, we trust the Bible. Because we love God, we trust the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word for us, telling us the true story of our world, the nature of God, and our relationship with him. Ultimately, the Bible points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's son. As a result, Scripture is our primary source of authority and the foundation for all of our ministries. It's our regular practice to teach through whole books and sections of the Bible when we gather on Sundays, a.k.a. what's known as expository preaching, where you're unfolding or expositing the Bible. So for sake of time, I'll try to collapse some examples and application to us both like all together and personally or individually, I'll try to do both at the same time. So first, individually and together, We base our church doctrine and our church practice around the Bible. 
because that's what we believe we have to go on when it comes to knowing stuff about God. I mean, there's a lot of things these days that would be easier for you to believe and easier for me to teach were they not in the Bible. (laughs) But as I've said before, you can't just pick the parts about God that you like and discard the rest. That's not a real God, that's a Stepford God, remember. Like, why do I believe God is love? Why do I believe he gave his son for me to die on a cross for my sins? The kid's song has it right. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And why do I believe difficult things about God in the world that aren't as popular? For the Bible tells me so. Now, if you're here and perhaps maybe you're struggling with, um, with that or you're struggling with Christianity, I wish I had more time to defend and explain why Christians would think that, that this book comprises God's word. And uh, hopefully I can do that more another time. But for now, I would recommend another really short little book by Barry Cooper, not Gary Cooper, Barry Cooper, um, called Can I Really Trust the Bible? Uh, And in this little book, Barry Cooper (laughs) makes the case that you can know that the Bible is God's word in the same way that Winnie the Pooh can find honey in a jar. Um, First, he looks at the jar to see if it's labeled honey. Does it claim to be honey? Is there a label on there that says that it's honey? Uh, If so, he looks in the jar and kind of tests it, smells it, maybe touches it. Does it seem like it's honey? Does it have the characteristics and qualities of honey? And then third, what's Winnie the Pooh going to do? He's going to scoop his big old paw in there, get some, and he's going to taste it. He's going he's to try it. Well, in the same way, this book kind of works through, does the Bible really claim to be God's word? Is it labeled as such? Does it seem to have the characteristics of something that would come from God, you know, in terms of scholarship, standing up to literary criticism, historical criticism, and so forth? But then last, will it prove to be God's word? by taste and experience. It's worth a short read, and if you're somebody who is struggling with those questions today, I happen to have an extra copy. Um, I only have two, so this is my one copy. If you want the extra one, uh, come find me. I'd be glad to give it to you afterwards. But perhaps the greater challenge in this this value is not so much for the non-Christian or the skeptic, but for the Christian. Uh, UNC professor and famous biblical skeptic, Bart Ehrman, reportedly, will ask a lot of his freshman classes when they come in, he'll teach um, New Testament classes at UNC, but he's very skeptical of of God and the church and New Testament. Um, He'll ask the freshman class, how many of you are Christians? Lots of people in the class will raise their hands. He'll then ask, how many of you believe that the Bible is God's word? Again, lots of hands in the classroom go up. Third question, How many of you have read all the words in the Bible? Not as many hands, maybe sometimes one or two. He then asks a provocative and challenging question. If you really believe all these words are from God, (laughs) you really believe all these words are from God? How could you not have read them? (laughs) Do you really think these are God's words? Wouldn't you treasure them? You know, if my house started to go up in flames, after making sure my family was safe, caveat, there would be something that I would try to grab on my way out. 
Have you ever thought about this? This is like an icebreaker question. People do get to know you. If your house was on fire, what would you get? I know one of my things. It would be a box full of letters, some of the earliest letters that I have from Ashley when we dated long distance. And we wrote paper letters, imagine it, back and forth. Um, And they're precious to me because of who wrote them. You hear David say in Psalm 19, God's words are sweeter than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Well, church, are they that for you? Do you treasure them? Like enough to read them? (laughs) So not only do we want to trust scripture as our church, we want to treasure it. And then last and fourth, because we love God, we want to give open-handedly. We want to give. We want to be a church that experiences the joy of surrendering our whole lives to God's agenda. Generosity is a mindset that includes our time, our plans, our financial resources, our friendships, and our energies. For the glory of God and for the joy that it brings us, we want to be a giving church, freely sending our people and our resources wherever God might direct them. Our needs are the least important in the kingdom, and we stand ready to share all that we have as an act of worship to our humble Savior. That last bit, are we the most important church on earth? Are we the most important church in God's kingdom? (laughs) Will North Wake Church last forever? These are rhetorical questions. I'm pretty sure the answer is no. So while we last and while we are here, we want to give. We want to send. Corporately, we give by banding our resources together to organize ministry, to support missionaries, to relieve the needy, to maintain our campus, to reach our community through things like our regular offerings, Gen 12 and intermissions auction for the nations. But it's not giving and generosity. Please do not mishear me. It's not just about our monetary resources. Here we also train and send a lot of human resources, our friends, This is both deeply difficult and incredibly rewarding for us. If you've been here long enough, you've probably had this experience where you meet someone, they become dear friends to you, only to find that pretty soon, God has sent them to some other ministry or life assignment somewhere else in the world. And that can be a hard thing. Because like, oh, not making any new friends around here. Nope, nope, everyone's leaving. But that's part of the difficult gift that we have as ascending church. It's part of who we are. But then not just together, also personally or informally. We give in all these ways, but in other ways too. And you heard some of that in the statement. Opening our homes to one another. Keeping some money tucked away in our pockets for someone else's rainy day, like we do with the neighbor to neighbor pledges. Does God need our resources? I don't think so. But I think he's given them to us that we might learn that it's a whole lot more fun to use your resources for the advancement of Christ's kingdom than to deplete them on yourself or hoard them for yourself. It's just more fun. And yet even in this, this call to open-handed, generous living and giving, scripture roots all this in the beautiful truth of what Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 8. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We love God, we exalt Christ, we pray, we trust the Bible, we give open-handedly because he first loved us. Because he first loved us, we love God. Let's pray. So Lord, we want to be a church that truly embraces and embodies these things. First and foremost, to be a church that, that just loves you. We do not want to be a place full of empty, formal religion. We want to be a people whose hearts are melted in love for you. And because of that, we want to do these things. So we thank you for your love in Christ. By your spirit today, even as we sing to you, would you, would you help us to see your beauty that we would love you all the more. And it's through his precious name we pray. Amen.